Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Melina Lee Williams Haas. I deeply appreciate you listening and taking the time to hang out with me. I will be addressing issues of life, the universe, and everything that are often bogged down and mired in shame and grief, and talk about how they can be repackaged to be useful and gorgeous and fucking awesome for you. So, sit back and relax, or, you know what? Sit up and freak out. However, you prefer to listen. Let's go. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be performing Hyena, and of course, I am a fucking mess about it. And I've tried to figure out if I wanted to talk about this or not, and of course, my initial impulse was I did not want to talk about it, and therefore, I perforce am compelled to do so. If you are not familiar, Hyena is a solo performance piece for myself with an orchestra. It was written by my beloved husband and owner, Gerg Fiebrich Haas, who has his own fame, <laughs> independent of our relationship. And the backstory for this is, interestingly, when we first met, while I did actually listen to some of Georg's music prior to our first date, because I did not want to even go on a date with someone if they were an artist whose art I didn't appreciate, not good or bad, but if it just wasn't floating my boat, I don't want to even waste my time with them or waste their time with me. So I listened to a couple of his pieces and I found them fascinating and engaging. And so I gave him the date. I found out probably about a year or so later that he had not only not done any (laughs) research into my performance career, he deliberately avoided doing so. Why, you might ask? Well, unlike me, artistic merit (laughs) was not a condition of his engaging with someone. He had had prior partners who were involved in the arts. His first wife apparently was a uh, some sort of for quarter virtuoso or something. Yeah, they exist. Don't at me about it. And then I don't know about the second wife. The third wife was allegedly some sort of musician and whatever. And so I think he was a little bit concerned. I mean, I know he was because he, when he revealed this to me, finally told me that it could turn out that I was just not very good. And that was okay for him. He didn't mind, but he didn't want that to be part and parcel of his decision-making process. So about a year or so into our relationship, I was talking about my experience of getting sober and how I had told the short story of Hyena on a couple of different occasions. And he was like, oh, I should listen to that. I'm like, oh, you haven't heard that particular iteration of the story. Here's a link. I found out later that he hadn't heard any iterations of the story. But regardless, about 10 minutes later, he came out of his office, eyes red, tears streaming. And he said, you're incredible. The way you tell the story. I'm like, yeah, I'm fucking incredible. Like it's my central skill set in terms of performance is storytelling. 
And he said, well, I, I just didn't know. I'm like, what do you mean you didn't know? And then this is when I discovered that out of fear for me not being very good, he had not listened to any of my performance stuff. And I was like, wow, bro. Wow. Okay. So I was glad that he was pleased. But then the next thing out of his mouth was a little surprising. And he said, I'm going to write music for this. You can tell this story and there'll be music under it and it'll be this thing and we'll make music history. And I was like, well, calm the fuck down, first of all, because uh, music with spoken word is not some sort of new innovative thing. Perhaps in the contemporary music world, it's a little bit unusual. But in the world of spoken word performance, extemporaneous music performed alongside is very commonplace. And I will extend that to hip hop, which is essentially the same thing. You know, people are freestyling. That's storytelling, right? With more rules, obviously, because you have rhythm and meter and all of these things. And so those brilliant poets, I can't even pretend to step up to what they're doing. But it's been done and it's a thing. And I appreciated the fact that we were taking it to a different level, into a different place. And the premiere of Hyena was in Vienna at the State Opera House. And it's very imposing and very amazing. And when you walk in, there are busts of all the famous composers and realizing that I'm performing in the same room that, that people who are household names hammered into the pages of history have also performed in was kind of amazing. But the most amazing part about it was afterwards, I had someone come up to me and grasp my hand so tightly and lock eyes with me and lean in very closely and say, thank you so much for sharing your story. Because I know some people who really, really need to hear your message. And I was a little bit shook. It wasn't, I wasn't totally shook because this had happened before when I just told the very fast, like five to seven minute version, people were electrified by the fact that someone was speaking to their experience. And the thing about addiction is that it's such a permanent aspect of our cultures around the world, everywhere. There's no place where addiction is not a fucking issue. And there's no place where addiction is being dealt with openly and reasonably and humanely across the board. There are some countries that are doing so much better, right? The Scandinavian countries, the Nordic countries that have places where folks who are users of heroin can go and use safely and get safely metered doses and make sure that they are able to get clean needles and all of these things. Amazing, right? Treat the folks with dignity and humanity and then figure out how to get them off of the drugs if the drugs are impacting their lives in such an incredibly negative way. Shame, humiliation, and no treatment are not effective as we are seeing in America and the continued unraveling of this nation. Part and parcel of that is the quote-unquote opioid crisis, which of course was the war on crack back in the day when it was only brown folks who were dying because of addiction. Now that it's white folks, of course, it's a problem. It's a pan it's an epidemic, right? An epidemic implying something over which people have no control, a war implying something that must be conquered and defeated, damn the torpedoes and damn the collateral damage, right? But I digress. I've been a performer for my entire life, as far as I'm concerned. I decided when I was approximately four 
that I was going to be an actor. My dad had taken us to see the revival of the original Broadway cast of Hair. And at the end, as all the hippies are running naked through the aisles and I'm jumping up and down on my seat singing, let the sun shine in as we're, I was high as hell, like, you know, not even knowing what that was about. And I told my parents, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be an actor. And they're like, yes, of course. Yes, yes. Now, mind you, two years later, I was pulling in my first paychecks as a performer and an actor. So I was not fucking around. And I've always loved it. Except when I haven't. And the reality of doing a show that is me talking about my life completely candidly to the best of my recollection without any bullshit is so fucking overwhelming. Every time I have to perform Hyena, I feel sick. I feel sick because I have to go back to that place I was when I was sick, when I was at the lowest, sickest point of my life. And I have to dredge that up and talk to a room full of strangers about it. And it's important and it's critical and it's probably my life's work. And I don't enjoy it. It's not fun. It's not uplifting to me in those moments. It's for you. It's for the folks listening and watching. It's for the people who have not heard their stories told. It's for the people who don't understand what addiction is. It's for the person who thinks that alcoholics are just weak-minded losers who can't get their shit together. It's for the person who has lost someone to alcoholism. It's for the person who is slipping towards that dark doorway and doesn't know how to stop their slide. So it's not for me. And I get that. And there's shit that I just have to do in my life that's not incredibly thrilling and enjoyable. And I get that. But holy shit, is it hard? It's so hard. And the main reason it's hard, I think, is because I still carry the shreds and remnants of that shame and humiliation from when I was so out of control with my life. I don't know if you've ever had a waking nightmare where your body is not in your control, but your mind is completely alert and you try to move and you can't, or you feel like you're awake, but not, and you're not sure whether or not you're even conscious. Imagine that is your life, right? Sit and imagine yourself staring at, I don't know, a bottle of gasoline. <laughs> yeah. And saying, if I drink that, I'm going to get very sick. I might die. But some part of me is so desirous of that gasoline. And your whole body's going, that's a toxin. Don't drink it. You're going to be fucked up. And meanwhile, as your brain is rationally explaining to you why this is not a good idea, your hands are reaching for it, your mouth is opening, and you are gratefully swallowing this toxin that you know is damaging your body on the way in. And maybe you have kind of a little bit of an idea of what it's like to be in the full-blown throes of an addiction. There is no day where you wake up and you realize that now 
you have become an addict. That is some shit you look back on and try to pull apart and figure out later. I cannot express to you how terrifying it was to me at the beginning of the full swing of the pandemic. So that, that fall of, of 2020 when we were first going into it to see people joking about how they were killing a bottle of wine a night and maybe even popping into the second bottle or a half empty picture of a bottle of tequila and all of these jokes that people made because coping with alcohol is something that we have been taught is not shameful necessarily, is it? Culturally, at least. And this varies, of course, around the world, right? But alcoholism is one of the addictions that you can practice pretty much anywhere. I mean, even smoking, which you can practice pretty much everywhere. It's certainly legal, but it's detectable, right? People are going to know you're smoking. They're going to smell it. But if you are a serious addict and you pop a couple of shots of Jack Daniels into your morning coffee so that you can stop your hands from shaking on the way to work and get through until lunchtime when you can hit a couple of beers, who's going to know? Oh, yeah, sure, eventually people will figure it out. But there's a lot that can be explained away for many, many years. A lot of people don't want to look too closely at your shit because then that might mean they have to deal with their own. It's brutal and it's ugly and it hurts and it's humiliating and it's embarrassing. And there are a couple of small dark boxes that even I still don't open up around this issue because they're too painful even for me to think about on a daily basis. How much I despised myself. How grotesque and sick and ugly and putrid and useless I felt. And to evoke that for this show, to tell the story, is important and I have to do it. And I fucking am so scared. And it's not even that I'm scared of relapsing because... A, I don't think I will. And B, if I do, I have the most amazing support system of people who I know will remind me that I am worthy of life and breath and sobriety and beautiful things and wonderful relationships. So I feel very, very fucking fortunate on that side of it. But oh my God, oh my God. Y'all, I'm telling you right now, if you are someone who thinks that perhaps you are struggling, but you're in serious denial about it because, of course, you're too smart or too, <laughs> too whatever to think that this is not you. If you think it might be you, it probably is you. Alcoholism is not a black or white thing. It's not an on or off thing. Before I was an alcoholic, I was certainly alcohol dependent. Before I was alcohol dependent, I was abusing alcohol. And before I was abusing alcohol, I was a heavy drinker. Before I was a heavy drinker, I was just someone with a high alcohol tolerance. I will never remember what day of the week it was 
when I had my horrifying experience of realizing that I needed help, that I was on the brink of death. But I will remember exactly what I felt the first time I tasted alcohol. I was probably about six years old. And, you know, it's a common thing for adults when children are curious about alcohol to let them take a sip or a teaspoon or a taste because a child's normal reaction to alcohol is disgust and being grossed out, not wanting it. And so at my aunt's house, one afternoon, we were there over the summer, she was drinking some white wine and I caught a whiff of it and it smelled amazing. And I said, can I try it? And my mother was like, well, it's for grown-ups, you shouldn't have it. And my aunt was like, oh, just let her have a sip, she won't like it. And then she'll just leave us alone because I was persistent. And so I took the glass and before anyone could stop me, I was halfway through it. And then my aunt snatched it back out of my hand and I was like, that was good. It was not that terrible. Why did you say it was terrible? And they're looking at me like, oh, this kid and put the glass up so I couldn't get it. Now, of course, I was now, I mean, I was like six. So half a glass of wine is going to be intoxicating for a child, right? I felt great. I had more energy than I normally had. Colors were brighter. I felt happy that not in my stomach that was there most of the time was gone. And at that point, I was like, I know what I'm going to do when I'm a grown up. This is totally happening. Of course, I didn't have to wait till I was a grown up or was I already a grown up, depending on who you ask, right? By the time I was in high school, experimenting with alcohol, I mean, I'll say fucking junior high, but where I was going to my classmates' houses and vodka out of bottles and hurriedly dumping water back in to level up the amounts. I'm sure so many, <laughs> so many baby boomers on the Upper West Side was like, why is our vodka always so crap? But I never had a hard time drinking. In high school, I was always the one doing the shots at the front of the line, doing the most shots of everyone else. And because I was a broke ass, I would frequently be the bartender at parties so I could feel useful and also get a couple shots in and while people weren't looking, right? That was my modus operandi. And it was fine for me. Life was great. Yeah. Until it wasn't. And until I started realizing in my mid twenties that alcohol was a really good and important friend. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm a heavy drinker and that's fine because I can always get up in the morning and go to work. And that was my criteria. Isn't it delightful that towing the line of capitalism was how I gauged whether or not I was healthy? Well, I might be drinking four out of seven nights, but I'm getting up and going to work. <laughs> well, I might be blackout drinking a couple of times a month, but it's only on Friday or Saturday nights. So I have a couple of days to recover. So that's okay. There is so much darkness available to us when we stop loving ourselves. So much darkness. There is an infinite depth into which one can sink 
once one gives up on one's self. My story is not particularly unique. My story is not particularly compelling. Until you add the fact that I am a African-American woman who finally got sober in her 40s. And I say this because there are at least a half a dozen very good shows on various networks dealing with addiction, interventions, recovery, so many shows. And I was so excited to see this trend picking up because it was people who were willing to have their faces out there and talk about addiction and talk about what recovery is like and also show how hard it is. Because I tell you, you watch these shows, the percentage of people when that little final card comes up telling you what the disposition of their case is, the percentage of people who relapse is well above half. But you know what you are not seeing on these shows? You're not seeing a whole lot of brown faces. I think that there was, I think in the season of intervention that I watched, I think there were two seasons where there were no people of color at all. And then one person, I believe, who is of mixed race, maybe. We can talk about the reasons for that, but the reasons are less important than the end result, which is once again, people of color are not seeing themselves represented, even though we are disproportionately impacted by the reality of these recovery issues and addiction issues. Because the reality is most people who are drinking or taking drugs are not doing so. The idea of recreational drugs, like, hey, this is for fun. Fuck you, man. Can we just retire that goddamn term? This is not recreation. This is survival. Okay? These are survival drugs. Let's try that term. Survival heroin. Survival opioids. Survival booze. Because I tell you, I was drinking in order to not kill myself. Period. Because I felt like dying. I felt like such a piece of garbage, but I felt less like a piece of garbage that should take its own life when I was drunk. So that was my coping mechanism. And I have heard hundreds of stories through Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I'm telling you, none of these folks are out there doing this because they were having fun. We do it because we hurt so badly and we don't have any other way to cope with it. You understand in America that getting medications for your mental illness is not something that's available to everyone. You realize that, right? You realize that telling someone, oh, well, just go get meds. Fuck you, man. That's not easy, even if you do have insurance. Do you know how many times I've tried to find a therapist, a suitable therapist, and been straight up unable to? I sent 30 emails to 30 different therapists in New York City, and of the ones who got back to me, which was maybe only 10 of them, all of them said that they were not taking patients for the next 9 to 17 months. <laughs> I have several friends whose therapists actually retired in the past couple of years, and they're like, now I'm not sure what I'm going to do. So it's not just go do X, Y, and Z. We are not afforded that. And then once you decide you do want help, and the best help is for you to go to an inpatient, 
meaning that you are supervised and assisted, that you have the proper medications to help your body come up off the abuse that has been levied against it. Who can afford that? I happened to be in San Francisco where one of the handful of free inpatient medically supervised rehab centers is located. There's maybe six or seven of those in America that are free, right? Now, if you have insurance, there are other ones that are free for a certain amount of time that might be covered by your insurance. But if you don't have insurance or your insurance is inadequate, you're screwed. You have a problem? Go fuck yourself. Go figure it out. And if you fail to figure it out, that is a moral failing on your part. Every time I have to go back into that aspect of my life, that dark, dark hole, the rage also comes back. So as I'm up there talking about how terrified I was that I was going to die, I'm also filled with so much anger. And unfortunately, because of my insane levels of empathy, I'm terrified for the people I can feel whose desperation I can smell. Many, 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 many years ago, I went to a show at the San Francisco Fringe Festival. And it was a show that was a solo show that was written by a woman who was also a recovering alcoholic. Well, she was a recovering alcoholic. I can't say also. At the time, I was not in recovery. But she was talking about a, a situation where she had been in an AA chat room and someone in the chat room revealed the details of like a murder. And she was like, I, that someone needs to tell someone. And then it became this issue of privacy because of course what happens in AA meetings should stay in AA meetings, et cetera, et cetera. And through the course of her talking about alcoholism and about her recovery and everything else, I felt this in the pit of my stomach realization. I was like, that's me. That's me. That's me. Now, mind you, this was in the scope of things still fairly, probably about eight or nine years out from me getting to the point where I was a real disaster pants mess. But I had been going through a dark spirally moment and I had been drinking too much. And I was like, I'm going to be this person if I don't. And then after the show, I just, you know, there were people who were waiting to talk to the performer, the woman who had done the show. And I was in line. I wanted to talk to her. And then there were a couple people in front of me and I'm standing there and I'm getting more and more anxious. And then I just burst into tears and started crying. I just started crying while I was standing there, maybe three or four people back in the line. And folks turn around to look at me because, you know, someone is quietly sobbing behind you. Of course, you're going to take a look. But then I saw the woman, the performer, turn around. She had her back to me at the time and glance at me. And as we made eye contact, she had this panicked look on her face and immediately turned back around and, and reengaged with the other folks and did not stop talking to them until, you know, basically we were chased out of the theater. So she uh, did her best to avoid talking to me. And I was devastated. Because in that moment, I was like, I felt like this was the one person who could see who I was and that I was a mess. And she had just looked at me and turned away. And I was like, but I needed to talk to you. I needed to say things to you. I needed you to see me and to understand and to relate. I didn't know who I could relate to. As far as I knew, I didn't have any friends who were alcoholics who I could say, I think that's me too. What do I do? 
That is the reason why I stand after every show, even though it will take me an hour at least, and I speak to anyone and everyone who needs to talk to me, even though I'm fucking exhausted and I just want to crawl into a hole and stop talking and stop having people look at me and see what a piece of crap I am. But I talk to everyone. You know why? Because somewhere in this audience is the person who needs to be seen. And maybe you can't come to see Hyena in Boston at the end of this month. But I want you to stop right now if you have a question about yourself and your addiction and give yourself a moment. Find a mirror. Find a mirror and look. And I want you to see the person that I see. I want you to love yourself as fully as I am loving you right now. And if you are coping with your pain, with a substance that doesn't make you a failure, that makes you like me. And I hope you don't think I'm a failure. That makes you like me. And that also means, like me, you can have an amazing, amazing, amazing life without those substances propping you up, numbing you out, and dragging you to your death. Please love you as much as I do. Love yourself enough to consider what a healthy and joyous you would look like, okay? How about a healthy, joyous, and sober you? It seems like a crazy pipe dream maybe to some of you, but I swear to fucking God, this shit on the other side is amazing, yo. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to open my script and I'm going to look at the Melina who was alive in February <laughs> of 2007. Because it was the beginning of March, mid-March, that I was in rehab. So I think it was probably about two weeks. Probably right around the time when I'm performing is going to be right around the time when I had that moment, that realization. Whew, that is some shit, isn't it? I love you so much. And I have extra love for the strugglers. God, you're so fucking bomb. What you have done is found a way to live. But if the way you have found to live then becomes a doorway to your death, maybe it's time to pull out and redirect. And I am doing that work too every day right alongside you. Come join me. Come join me. You've been listening to All That and Mo. Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. 
My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb. Theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas, as performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon. Mm-hmm.